So 1 Peter 1, here's what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So, Lord, we thank you for your word that we get to be encouraged by and just receive this very word from you, a living word. God, we get to see this living hope here today. And so I pray that you would teach us, lead us on in your truth and in your word here. So we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. Keep your Bibles open to First Peter there. And, and uh, I'm excited to begin this series as we go through verse by verse through First Peter and Second Peter. And it's been a long time. Uh, since we've gone through that as a church. Some 16 years ago, I think we were in First Peter, so it's been a long time. I've been really looking forward to getting back into it. And like I, I like to do with every study that we're in, I like to kind of intro it by giving a bit of the who, the when, the what, you know, just kind of give us a bit of a background as to what's going on and the occasion of the writing and when it was taking place. So of course, we have our who. It's very clear to us, it's Peter. And Peter is someone that we're well acquainted with, especially as we've gone through the Gospel of John last year. We got to see many times the life of Peter. And I'm, I, I just love Peter. Peter's a guy that we read a lot about with, with very, you know, uh, it, it's, it's very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I, important and helpful as we do. Now, what's interesting is Peter is mentioned some 210 times in the New Testament. Paul, the next person that you hear mentioned most, is mentioned 162 times in the New Testament, whereas all the other apostles combined are mentioned only 142 times. So Peter is a guy that really stands out in the Bible. Sometimes stands out for the right reasons, sometimes stands out for the wrong reasons, which is why I'm glad that we get to read about Peter, because it brings a lot of hope to me and hopefully to all of you. Now, what's interesting is is if you look at the next person that's kind of talked about probably the most, it would be the Apostle John. Peter has come to be known as the Apostle of Hope. Paul, the Apostle of Faith, because he talks about justification by faith primarily. And then John, the Apostle of Love. So we have personified in all these three people, faith, hope, and love. Isn't it great? I can imagine John saying, yeah, but the most important is love. And Peter probably going, I hope that you are kidding about that one. But we see this idea, faith, hope, and love. So Peter now becomes this man associated with this hope that we're going to hear about and talk about uh, this morning in this chapter as we've already read here. But I'm thankful for guys like Peter in God's word because I think more than most, he's a guy that I quickly relate to, right? Peter's the guy that dealt with foot and mouth disease or foot, you know, in mouth, right? He was an impulsive man that was constantly kind of rushing into things, sometimes at his own peril or mistakes and things like that, right? One minute, there he is in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked, 
Who do you say that I am? And Peter, you know, proclaims, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, yeah, Peter, well done. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven has revealed this to you. I mean, Peter's right there on a great high. And then when Jesus starts to talk right after about his own suffering and death, Peter kind of pulls him aside. Jesus, no way is this going to forbid this from happening to you. I do not, I'm not, this is not going to happen to you. And what does Jesus have to say? Get thee behind me, Satan. One minute he's saying, you're receiving revelation right from the top to, man, you're like the devil. I mean, this guy had some great highs and he had some pretty equal lows going on in his life. One minute he's in the garden pulling out his sword to cut off the servant's ear that was a part of the group coming to arrest Jesus, right? The next minute he's like, this great, I'm going to stand up for Christ, man. I'm not going to let anything happen to then denying Jesus three times with this servant girl. I mean, this guy went through the ups and the downs, the the mountaintop experiences and the valleys, and he kind of wrestled between these two. One minute he's walking on water, the next minute he's sinking, calling out for help. But here's a guy now that God didn't dismiss. Could have easily said, Peter, hey, that's great, but you know what? Uh, I need you just to kind of slip into the background a little bit now. I need you just to kind of stay out of the way. Stop getting yourself into trouble. I'm going to work. And... No, God decides to use Peter and he calls him. And here we have a, his own book. You know, Peter being instrumental in, in recording, writing down scripture as the Holy Spirit inspired him. He's someone that stepped over the line on several occasions. But it tells me here that God is big on grace and mercy. I'm so glad for that. In fact, it's something that Peter came to know very intimately and writes about personally. So there's hope for all of us here when you look at a guy like Peter. I'm glad for that. Now, when was this being written? Well, the, the time of this writing was probably around AD 64. Tradition tells us that Peter was martyred under the reign of Caesar Nero, the emperor of Rome, around 67 to 68 AD. And it was around 64 AD that Intense persecution began to to get amped up against the church and against Christians specifically. And that was, again, under Caesar Nero. What Caesar did was he had had some arsonists come and and set fire to Rome. Caesar's, uh, Nero's kind of goal was to sort of rebuild Rome with his own kind of, you know, stamp or imprint upon it there, really to kind of make a name for himself. But then when people began to, think Nero have you done this are you to blame for that to kind of pass the buck and displace the the focus on him he started to blame the Christians this weird group of people that talked about you know the fires of hell it's the Christians that have done this and so there began to be a real heavy onslaught against Christians in this time starting really around 64 AD right around the time that Peter starts to write this epistle here. And so Nero did some pretty heinous things with the Christians, kind of arresting them, bringing them into the arena where they would have to fight against wild animals to their own slaughter and, and getting killed. He would, he would take Christians and, and put tar on them and light them on fire, make them human torches in his own garden where he would ride around in his chariot naked. I mean, this is Nero. It, it sounds absurd, but this is the madman that Nero was. And so there began to be a lot of trouble, suffering, persecution for the Christians, which is why Peter is writing this epistle. His purpose in writing this is to encourage and strengthen those that are going through suffering and persecution. 
is to come and bring hope. You see, Peter doesn't sit there and say, hey guys, if you're going through suffering and stuff, you just need a little bit more faith. You need a little, or maybe you need to give a little bit more. Sow that seed of promise. That's what a lot of, you know, false gospel teachers would love to say today. That you just need more faith. If you have faith, you're not going to be sick. You're not going to go through trials and problems. Yet Peter doesn't address it that way. He says, listen, don't be surprised at these things. Because even our own Lord went through suffering. In fact, Peter will go on to say, count it all joy. I mean, I mean, rejoice in the sufferings that you experience. Rejoice in those because you're going through the same sufferings that Christ went through. And these things are, are, are temporary. This is what Peter wants to bring across to us. He wants us to be those that are standing strong. And, and like our theme is in, in this study we're going to be going through, to be steadfast in the faith. Don't give up. Don't let up. Don't back down. Keep going on steadfast in the faith because you have a wonderful promise in and through Jesus. And that's what we want to talk about here today. We want to talk about what God has done for us, which enables us and keeps us moving forward in the midst of trials and suffering. And it's a book here that I think is very practical and helpful for all of us. Because we ourselves are going to be just like the readers here that Peter is addressing. Going through times of suffering and and trials. We're not meant to have it easy. How many people have experienced a form of suffering at one point or trials in your life? Come on, just want to make sure that you're all with me. I experienced some just this 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 past week here actually, a real... Time of suffering, I, was, uh, I came home one day and our, our neighbor kids were over. And uh, that wasn't it in itself. But, and my neighbor kids, you know, we're, you know we, we bought this property with, with Brandon and Jen. And, and so uh, there are, you know, their kids are our neighbor kids. So I'm going to probably have lots of illustrations now with them. So when I mentioned neighborhood kids, you know who I'm talking about. They're Pastor Randy's grandkids. And so, so we're playing hide and go seek. And so with the youngest one, we, we decide, let's go hide in our front closet. That's a little thing, right? So we shut the door and her brother's trying to find us. So we're standing in there, this cramped little quarter. And all of a sudden she goes, I tooted. And I'm like, it's, you know. And I'm competitive. I don't want to get out and be found. I'm like, I, I got a choice to make here. And I don't know what that girl ate that day, but she can pack a punch, let me tell you. There's no airflow in there. It's, it's difficult. And I'm turning green. I'm suffering. It's tough. It was hard. So, anyways, we go through times of suffering. We, nothing, I mean, who Peter's addressing, it's, it's far worse than that. I'm just getting, letting you know. There's going to be times where it's not easy. But as Christians, we're never guaranteed an easy road. And easy, we're never promised that everything's going to be just rosy tiptoeing through the tulips. It's not always going to be that way. And yet, Peter wants to remind us that we have a great hope. This is a book that's meant to bring encouragement to all of us and and strengthen us to keep on being steadfast in the faith. J. Allen Blair said this, First Peter is a favorite book because of its practical approach to the needs of every believer. This little epistle provides a splendid source of peace and comfort for all God's people who are perplexed and troubled. So here's what we're going to be looking at as we go through 1 Peter over the next few Sundays here. We're going to see, first of all, the believer's salvation. 
we're going to see the believer's submission, the believer's suffering, and the believer's service. We're going to hear these words, you know, suffering and, and, and submission all throughout. Every chapter is going to have stuff regarding this content here. But before we talk about specifically those things, Peter wants to remind us of this great work of salvation that we have in Christ. Because when we begin to recognize what we have in Jesus, it enables us, doesn't it, to keep moving forward, to know that there's hope, to know that it's not everything to do just with this life, but with what Jesus has done for us and what he has in store for us. So as we go through our study here today, uh, we're going to see this plan of salvation. And I, I only got through the first five verses this first service. I was hoping to get through 12, but uh, we didn't. Uh, primarily because Christina was a little bit late getting back to the worship. But um, <laughs> it, it wasn't all her fault, just like 90, 90%. But uh, we're going to see its program. We're going to see salvation's proposition and salvation's prophecy. So obviously just the first one today, but we'll get into the rest of it next Sunday here. So we're going to look at the program of, of salvation here. Look at verse 1 with me again. And I'm teasing. Christina did nothing, nothing wrong. She's great. So um, It says here in verse 1 again, let me read it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and by Thinia. Let me stop right there. First of all, we see Peter identify himself as one writing this letter, very obvious that he's writing it, and he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So uh, again, very different to how we would write a letter or an email today. We always sign off with our name, but in Bible times, they'd always start with their name because they'd be reading and writing on a scroll or reading on a scroll, and so you wouldn't want to have to unroll everything uh, and wait to see who's writing this. You want to kind of have a, an idea who's this coming from. So they don't always identify themselves first. And Peter identifies himself as an apostle. And again, I think that's so awesome. Of all the crazy things that Peter did, here we see him as one who's being sent out by Jesus Christ. And that's what an apostle was. An apostle was one that was sent out for a specific purpose, a calling of the Lord, and, he, and they go out in that authority of the one sending them. So Peter's writing now with the authority of Jesus Christ as an apostle. An apostle in this day was one that had to have seen the Lord. They'd seen the risen Lord and they carried that authority of the Lord. So because of who Peter was, like I said, I mean, he could have been relegated to something different, a lesser role, kind of tucked away in the background. But in God's grace, Peter becomes a, a prominent part a leader of the early church and an author of scripture that you and I get to benefit from today. That's pretty awesome. And, and I pray that that in itself just gives you hope today that no matter how you may have blown it in the past, that doesn't need to be the last chapter of your story. In fact, God loves to start new chapters in our lives. And he's doing that with Peter here. So may that encourage you today. And Peter's writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Bet you didn't know that pilgrims were back here in biblical times maybe not the pilgrims that you're thinking of here but peter's addressing those who have been moved out from their homeland that idea of a pilgrim could be also translated as strangers sojourners in other words peter's again writing to people that have been dispersed they've been sent away from their homeland because of 
persecution because of the trials they're facing. And so they've had to, they've had to move on. And they find themselves now strangers in a foreign land. But I think this is so good because I think when he dresses pilgrims of the dispersion, that's something that we could put ourselves into because the Bible has called us to be what? To be sojourners. We're sojourners, meaning that we're just passing through this world. This world, my friends, is not our home. And we're not called to make this world our home to where we're finding our comforts, our joys in this world. We're not caused to plant deep roots in this world. We're called to be sojourners that are just passing through. It's like when you go camping, you're not starting to put up a a framed house to live in. You're not building, you know, putting down a foundation, building up the frame and, and, and drywalling and everything like that. You're not, you're camping for a weekend. You're just putting down a tent because you know that's temporary. It's not going to be a permanent place. And so too, for us, we're just sojourners. We're just passing through. We're not meant to make this world our home. We're strangers here. But we're, but we're strangers with a, a purpose. And so Peter is writing to these people that have been scattered abroad. And he identifies all these different areas that they're in here now. He, let, me just, let me just mention here, this is neat because before I get into the, the map and the places here, the ESV records this idea of pilgrims as being the elect exiles. And, and that would kind of bring to mind then for a lot of Peter's Jewish audience here, you know, how they were once, or their fathers, their ancestors were once taken into exile in Babylon, right? Taken away from Jerusalem. And, and now they're experiencing a similar kind of situation. See, persecution come in even long before they've experienced this persecution that's become more widespread. But even back before Paul was saved, Paul was instrumental in persecuting the church. Tells us in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now Saul was um, consenting to his, Stephen's, death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So all these places that, that Peter mentions here, when he mentions, you know, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, is all in you know, what's been known as Asia Minor, or it's modern-day Turkey. That's where Peter's addressing this, is where he's seeing that a lot of people have, they've moved not just to regions outside Jerusalem, but it's become much more widespread. This persecution has begun to spread now under Caesar Nero, and so they're advancing into further areas. So Peter's writing again to these people to bring this encouragement and help and strength to them. And it's important that we can read this epistle now with that personal application knowing that you know in the same boat we're called to be pilgrims sojourners passing through this life isn't always going to be easy but we're called to bring our focus and our direction back to jesus to where we find all hope in him and notice how peter identifies his audience here he says in verse 2 elect according to to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. I mean, Peter just jumps right into it, right? And he's making my job a little bit tougher because he doesn't, he doesn't move on with a nice, you know, nice greeting or introduction. He just gets right into some heavy doctrinal issues here. 
that, that we need to break down and look at a little bit more closely here. But Peter says these Christians, are, they're called, they're identified as the elect. As believers today, we're the elect of God. You're elect, you're, you're chosen. How wonderful, how incredible is that today? Now, it puts a lot of unnecessary worry on people wondering, well, am I one of the chosen ones? Have I been elected by God? Have I maybe misunderstood? Did I, did I get in kind of the, the, the back door and nobody knows I'm really su- not supposed to be here? Like, I, I, am I going to get found out? Like, we sometimes wrestle over these facts of, have I really been chosen? I've talked to many people that doubt that, that wonder, am I chosen? Am I one of the elect? Now, there's an important thing to tie together here, that this choosing is based on God's foreknowledge. In other words, God knows all that's going to happen, all that's going to come. He knows the end from the beginning. He's omniscient. And so he has this foreknowledge, just like he could call Jeremiah, even before Jeremiah was born. Even before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. And God had Jeremiah set apart for a purpose. You see, I want you to catch this here. Because the Bible teaches both sides of God's sovereignty, his election, and human responsibility or free will. You see, what happens is that some people, they swing to the extreme of either side. They go, well, God is sovereign. And so if God is sovereign, then man can have free will. But then there are those that go, well, if man has free will, then maybe God's not completely sovereign after all. And they swing to these extremes on either side, whereas I believe, listen, I believe the Bible teaches both. That God is completely sovereign. That nothing changes that. But yet, he's given us free will. And he's allowed us to come and receive his truth, the gospel by grace. See, the invitation has gone out to all. In fact, probably the most popular verse in the Bible is John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, notice that, that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. It doesn't say that the elect believe in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. It says that whoever. God says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 to 4, or Paul writes this, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So catch this. There are, there are those that conclude that Man has no freedom and that God chooses some to be saved and, and some to be damned. That, that extreme view of, of election basically teaches that you can't save yourself that, and we know that we can't, but God chooses and he chooses some to be saved and some not to be saved. But then you look at verses like this and then you go, well, God, you must be bipolar then or something because at one side you're saying whoever will may come that he wishes that none would, be saved, none would perish, but that all, all people would come to the knowledge of the truth. And if those aren't true, then, or, or, or if God elects and only elects some, and he chooses to save some, chooses not to save some, then, then God is made out to be a liar. Because then these verses don't ring true. And there are many verses in God's word that reveal God's desire to save people, but man's unwillingness to receive it. Likewise, many verses that reveal the invitation is given to all, 
but not all will believe. Remember when Jesus came, came riding into Jerusalem and he wept over the city. Why? Because he says, if, if you had only known, you know, that love and compassion I have for you and I desire to draw you to myself, but he says, but you were not willing. He's not weeping over the city saying, oh, I would love to save all of you, but I just can't. There's some of you I choose not to save. No. It was that they were not willing. You see? So, so what I'm trying to say is that the Bible teaches both sides of election and sovereignty of God. He completely is. But we also see that he's given man free will. We don't have to fight over one extreme or over the other. Some will say, if people choose to be saved or not, then God isn't sovereign and he can't do what he wants. The fact is that God is sovereign and the fact is that he exercises his sovereignty in spite of man's free will, which to me makes God even more amazing. That he's not saying, well, I can't let you have free will because then I'm not sovereign. He says, I'm going to show you my sovereignty even in the midst of your free will. God is so big, so awesome, and so outside of our understanding and being able to fathom the greatness of our God. But when I see these truths that we can't always reconcile, I just have to go, man, God, you're amazing. I can't, I can't figure you out. See, the problem is, is that oftentimes we go, how does this work? I can't, I can't understand this so that I must conclude that this is what it is. We're trying to bring God down to our understanding. Listen, it, it, and, I, and I love this quote. I don't know if it was, who said if it was Wearsby or not, but if God was small enough for us to understand, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. God goes beyond our, our understanding. He's beyond it. And so I, I hold these things in tension sometimes. Election, free will, how does it work? God's got it figured out. It's good enough for me. Ephesians tells us that we've been chosen before the foundation of the world. In his foreknowledge, he has it all sorted out. It's been said that when we pass through into eternity, we'll see on, on, the, on the gate, not that there's going to be a gate, but just the illustration purposes, we'll see on the gate, whosoever will may come. And we pass through. And on the other side, we'll see, chosen before the foundation of the world. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. God chose me before I came into the world because he would never have chosen me after I came into the world. So, so we just hold these things in tension. But we know the Bible teaches both. And we don't have to try to understand it based on our finite reasoning. Now, as we move along here, we see that there's a work being done in you, for you, that is beyond you. Sometimes we think, how could God choose me? Why would he choose me? Well, it's not about you. It's the work that he's doing in you and, and through you. And he says there in verse in verse 2, in the middle part of verse 2, that we're elect, yes, but in sanctification of the Spirit. In sanctification of the Spirit. That word sanctification comes from a Greek word, hagios, which also from that root word comes other words like um, 
sacred, holy, or saints. All comes from that same Greek root word of, of hagios. So here we got this word sanctification. It simply means to be set apart. What this is saying is that when we're saved, we're saved with a purpose. God doesn't just choose us willy-nilly. He chooses us to be set apart for him and to glorify him. And guess what? The Spirit's helping you do that. Sometimes we think, oh man, I I can't do this. I'm going to fail. Well, God's not trusting in you. He's giving you his Holy Spirit to empower you and and enable you. It tells us in in 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2, verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God desires that we grow and mature as believers, and it's the sanctifying process that brings us all into fruition. Man, speaking about that election, I didn't, I didn't read this verse to you here. This is a great verse too that just backs up again. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Listen, if you're struggling over the fact of, am I chosen or not? I've accepted, but I don't know if I was supposed to. Was I one of the chosen? Listen, the invitation is given. God says, as many as received him. To them he gave the right to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. It's the simplest act, guys. If you've questioned over whether you're chosen or not, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and then you'll come to know, I'm chosen. I'm one of the elect. I'm in. It's as simple as that. Put your faith in him, and you won't have to doubt it. Because that's the invitation given. It's given to all. And then he does that work of sanctifying and and cleansing, empowering us to live these lives for him. And it's in this process of being set apart are also enabled and empowered by the Spirit unto obedience. That's what really begins to mark those that are truly His. It's not enough just to say, well, I believe, or I received Jesus one day when I was, you know, six years old at a camp I was at. No, the issue is, are you, are you walking in obedience? Now, again, that's hard in and of ourselves, but the Spirit continues to enable us and help us. You have the Spirit helping us carry that out. Now, remember... We don't obey to be saved. We obey because we are saved. You you, you have to keep that in account here. Obedience will show the fruit of your salvation, but we don't obey to be saved. We obey because we are saved. And even if we mess up or fail, here's the great thing, because I'm not good at 100% obedience. I know that's shocking many of you right now but i'm not i'm not good at 100 percent obedience there's areas that i trip up on but notice what it says at the end of verse 2 that the spirit is sanctifying us for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of jesus the blood of jesus is that which cleanses us now for a lot of people that aren't familiar with the bible you hear the sprinkling of blood and you're like ew that's gross i don't know if i want that but for those familiar with the Bible, it brings to remembrance Old Testament practices of these sacrifices that were given to cover sin. And there were times, even, even at the, at the you know, covenant being, being made between God and his people, there were those that were sprinkled with blood physically. Aaron and his sons, as they were being instituted, instituted into the priesthood, were sprinkled with blood. 
as a form of of cleansing and, and dedication. When the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple, the tabernacle, on the Day of Atonement, one day a year, he would take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat that sat above the Ark of the Covenant. And it was a way of atoning for the sins of the nation, covering. But now we have something better. The precious blood of Jesus that not just covers us, but cleanses us from all sin. So that when we're living these lives for him, carrying out this work, this program of salvation, and we stumble and fall, we don't have to go, oh my goodness, I've blown it. I'm disqualified. We go, man, I'm covered under the blood of Jesus. Listen, the, the blood is nothing magical. I think we sometimes get carried away with this, the, the, the blood of Jesus. What the blood means is that, as, as God said, that the life is in the blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So when we talk about the blood of Jesus, it simply identifies that Jesus gave his life fully and completely for us to the point where he shed his blood. He didn't just pray some prayer, though he gave his life. That's why we talk about the blood of Jesus, to, to recognize he surrendered everything to us so that we could have life in him. So, here in this one verse, Peter establishes this program of salvation. We're elect, we're chosen, we're sanctified, we're set apart to obey, we're forgiven and cleansed of sin, none of which we're, we're able to do on our own. And notice this here, this is great, because here in this one verse, yes, still in verse two, and time is up, but in this one verse, we have all members of the Godhead mentioned. God in his foreknowledge, the spirit sanctifying, Jesus' blood shed for us. All members of the Trinity are active in our salvation. Now, there are those that go, oh, the Trinity is just a human invention. That's something we made up. It's, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Sin, there's a lot of things that aren't named in the Bible that exist. But the Trinity is seen throughout Scripture. And it's right here in verse 2 for us. And all members are active in our salvation. I like how Warren Wearsby breaks down this work of salvation through each member of the Trinity. He says this. He says, As far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died for me on the cross. But as far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved one night in May 1945 when I heard the gospel and received Christ. Then it all came together, but it took all three persons of the Godhead to bring me to salvation. That's a great way to look at it. And so Peter now, he goes in this introduction, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now that was a common form of greeting. Paul uses it often in his epistles. Grace and peace. Grace was the common Greek greeting of the day. Peace was the common Jewish greeting of the day. But you'll always find it in this order. Grace and peace. It's known as the Siamese twins of scripture. Paul always used it as grace and peace. Why? Because you cannot know the peace of God until you know the grace of God. You'll never fully comprehend what it is to be at peace with God until you receive and know and experience the grace of God. Knowing that it's not up to me 
to be right with God. It's not me trying to save myself. It's grace. It's a free gift. It's given, given to me, even though I don't deserve that are continually falling prey to this notion that we've got to earn our way. We've got to work for our salvation. We've got to be good people. We've got to do good things. But that eliminates grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. So when we fully recognize, I'm saved by grace and grace alone. So me simply putting my faith in Jesus and that grace is appropriated to me. Guess what happens? When you begin to understand grace to know, I can't earn my way to salvation I can't do enough. It's all by his grace. Suddenly we go, oh, I just have peace with God now. I don't have to come to God in fear and trembling, wondering, are these works enough? Have I been good enough? Have I done enough to earn my way? There's fear and trembling in that. But when we recognize grace, we go, I not only have peace in God, but I have peace with God. I can stand before him confidently because i'm not bringing my own righteousness i'm standing in the righteousness of christ given to me by grace so grace and peace and and peter says something that paul doesn't do he says grace and peace be multiplied to you that's my prayer for all of us here so we go through this that grace and peace will be multiplied to us that it will be just exponentially poured out in your lives that you will comprehend and know and understand these things oh boy Verse three, um, we're gonna move through this quickly and blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So as Peter reflects now, as he's done in just one verse, verse two, as he reflects on this great plan of salvation of God, this program of salvation, the great things that God has done for you, what happens to Peter now? He's just overwhelmed, I think, overcome with just joy in God. So he begins to worship God. That's what he's doing. Blessed be God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's just shouting out thanks and praise to God. I, I pray that we're doing that often. Praising God for all that he's done for us. Listen, there's, there's days that you might be going through that have just been a bad experience. Maybe you've had a bad week. Just start to reflect on what God has done for you and who you are in Christ. And let that begin to rise above your circumstances to begin to worship God. We never have to look far for a reason to worship God. And Peter just begins to launch into praise, blessed be God the Father, uh, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, notice this, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us. Begotten us again to living hope. The idea of being begotten is to be born again. We're given new life, and this new life comes with a new hope. Something that Star Wars could never quite live up to. It's a new in Christ. Unlike a lot of things today that we can put our hope in, things like following through in our New Year's resolutions or hoping that, you know, sermons at Riverside will, will be under 30 minutes. Oftentimes these hopes never come to fruition. They never live up. In fact, Time oftentimes becomes a destroyer uh, of hope. We see that it's, it's a passing thing. But for the believer, our hope only increases in the passing of time. Why? 
because it's a living hope. There's something vibrant about it. There's something alive in it. It's not a, a dead hope. It's not a hope that's based on anything we can do. It's a hope that's in God, and it is a living hope. Unlike the hope that becomes for us oftentimes just more wishful thinking, biblical hope is having a confident expectation. It's something that we hold on to with a confidence, a, a, an expectation that this is the way it's going to go. And there's nothing that, that is going to hinder that or dissuade that because it's outside of me. It's found in Christ. Notice a couple of things about this hope. It's according to God's abundant mercy. In other words, as much as we have the potential to mess it up or ruin it, it's not dependent on you. It's according to his mercy, which means he's not going to act according to what you deserve. Again, if it was, then we would mess it up. We'd be like, hey, guys, sorry. Man, I had, I had something so wonderful in store for you, but you blew it. Sorry. Gone. Hope has faded. No, it's according to his abundant mercy which means he doesn't act according to what you deserve. He shows mercy. Man's way leads to a hopeless end, but God's way leads to an endless hope. And this living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why we can have a confident expectation of better things to come because Jesus has given us proof. He defeated sin and death. His resurrection reveals for us that nothing can keep us down now. And Jesus said that he's going to prepare a place for us that where he is, we might be also, John 14, 1 to 3. So that's the great thing. He's alive. He's preparing a place for us. We know that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have a living hope now that this world and what goes on in this world is not the end. Whatever this world can throw at us, all the more is just going to help us advance to being with Jesus. And receiving that living hope. F.B. Meyer calls the living hope the link between our present and the future. Peter goes on to describe it as our inheritance. Look at verse 4. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. See, our eternal life is likened to our inheritance. An inheritance is something that you know is coming yet you don't get to fully enjoy it or experience it until, until the death comes. That's typically the way it goes. An inheritance is waiting upon the passing of another for you to begin to experience that. So too, when we die, we're going to receive a heavenly inheritance. Now, an inheritance in this life can change. See, it's never a sure thing, right? An inheritance, you could do something to offend the person leaving the inheritance to suddenly you're like written out. It's gone. Taken from you. But notice Peter says, this is an inheritance that doesn't get defiled. It doesn't fade away. It's incorruptible. It's something that you can count on and it will exceed your expectations. It's waiting in heaven for you. How many of you have made reservations before only to find that there was some error made? I've, I've booked, you know, a hotel room one time, like online, paid for it. I show up at the hotel and they're like, uh, yeah, no, we, we don't have any rooms. No, we don't have you down here at all. I'm like, what? I paid for this room and now you're telling me you're, you're full? I, mean, I know you can't lose your salvation, but I pushed the envelope on that day with that right there. I was like, are you kidding me? 
But here's the great thing, is that this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. It's waiting. There's nothing that is going to get taken away or undermined. So hearing that there's an inheritance being kept free in heaven might be great for some, but it also might be of little peace to you thinking, well, that's great. It's waiting in heaven for me, but how do I know I'm going to get there, right? Notice this. Not only is God holding this for you, reserving this for you, but he's also keeping you for that inheritance. He's keeping this inheritance for you and he's keeping you for this inheritance. Verse five, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's great. You're being kept by the power of God. He's gonna get us there. We can't say that we've blown it so much that we may be written out of his inheritance now. He's doing the work. That's that work of sanctification and cleansing through the blood of Jesus that we saw in verse 2. In fact, Paul would say in Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the, notice this, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. God's not looking to you to guarantee this inheritance. He's given us the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee now. It's like a deposit that he puts on us to say, you're mine and I'm gonna get you there to heaven to receive that inheritance. That's the great hope, the living hope that we have. That in spite of what we might experience in this life, there's reason to be encouraged. There's reason to continue on because of this living hope that we have in and through Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to, we're going to stop it right there. I wanted to get through a number more verses, but you know how it goes. And so we'll pick it up in verse 6 next week. But this is just a great start to this epistle where Peter's writing to bring encouragement for those that are discouraged, for those weary pilgrims. Listen, my friends, this world may not provide a lot of hope, but our hope is never in this world. We have a living hope that's outside of this world and a great inheritance that's waiting in heaven for us. And God is doing the work to get you there. That's that program of salvation. May we keep holding on to him, looking to him, trusting in him, and just being at peace in his great grace for us. Let's stand together and we're going to just close with a song of worship and an opportunity for you to come and receive communion. And as we do this, this is uh, again something that we do just to remember the work that's been done for you. The, the, the cup of juice representing that shed blood of Jesus the cracker representing that body of Christ has broken for you to bring you into life in him, salvation in him that's been given to you freely by his grace. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you, put your trust in him. Accept him because it's only through him that we can be forgiven of sin and be made new, be right with God and to be recipients of that inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven. There's no other way through Jesus but he's made it so easy receive him 
accept him as your savior turn from your sin put your trust in Jesus and you're saved and we do this as a way of just remembering the work that's been done for us and thanking him may you partake of these emblems of communion if you're a believer today this is for you do this in remembrance do this with joy do this in thanks for who Jesus is and what he's done for you